evening. I encourage you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to continue our exposition of that book tonight. Uh, most of us have heard uh, at least one message already today, and uh, that uh, no doubt focused on uh, Resurrection Day, and so I didn't feel the need to uh, try to come up with something along those lines. Some things were in my mind as far as what I might do if I didn't continue the exposition, but alas, I've decided that we need to continue and press on um, with our series in First Thessalonians. And really, we, we celebrate the Resurrection every Lord's Day. Amen? We come together. We, we, the, just the, the mere fact that we come together and we meet as a congregation and as a local church, an expression of a local church, and partaking of the ordinances, we declare the resurrection of Christ uh, to a lost and dying world. Now, we have entered into this last section of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 12 to the end of the book is the last uh, exhortation paragraph. The first one began in, in chapter 4, uh, you'll remember, and and from chapter or from verse 12 to the end, there's no less than 14 commands. And so it's like Paul has a spiritual machine gun and he's firing off commands at us because they're very brief, they're very much to the point, and they're very directed to the local church and how we ought to act with one another and how we ought to um, act with God and how we ought to um, relationally get along here. Um, I plan to look at these uh, slower, as I mentioned last week. Today we're only going to take up verses 14 and 15 um, of this section of the Word of God. Now, we have commented on, Paul talks about this uh, glorious return of Christ in this passage. It's called the rapture passage, the end of chapter 4 and then the beginning of chapter 5. The primary purpose of these occurring in this letter was to build up and encourage the believers um, in Thessalonica. And then in verses 12 and 13, last time we looked at uh, what appears to be uh, the nature of this exhortation uh, is that some were chasing under obeying the leaders that God had raised up in the local church. The church is probably less than a year old. Verses 12 and 13 delineate the responsibilities of shepherds to the sheep as well as sheep to the shepherds. We looked at that in some detail. Uh, just a few very brief comments of what we observed from that time. Notice that he does not address your pastor, that you appreciate your pastor. It's you appreciate those. And so we emphasize the idea of a plurality of leadership and of a pastoral office over local churches is very important and very clear here. Uh, the leaders uh, have that threefold function to labor unto weariness. And how do they labor unto weariness? They labor in weariness and unto weariness. It's in preaching, it's in praying, it's in shepherding, it's in visiting, and all the things that make up the office of the ministry. Also, he goes on and talks about those who have charge over you. That is, those who actually preside before you and actually have a view of protecting you. The third exhortation or, or description of what he gave is that, that it's these who give instruction and admonish for the good of the church and the good of the saints. And then in verse 13, he says that you are to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so the idea here that it's not because of their personality, their appearance, the, the, the niceness of the suit, or anything else, that that's not why you esteem them. You esteem them why? 
it's because of their work. It's because of the nature of the office of pastor that you esteem them highly in love, not because of their personality or any other thing. And this is an appropriate response for sheep to the shepherds, if, if they're faithful shepherds. Uh, we developed that last time, but that's an appropriate response because of their hard work for you. Well, tonight we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 here, a series of five imperatives and one that the Greek construction could be taken as an imperative. We're going to unpack these um, slowly, but by way of introduction tonight, Paul is wanting this young church to grow spiritually, that, that it would become uh, pure and, 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 and would, would come to maturity, right? And so he gives these series of admonitions. And, and really, what we're going to look at here is only possible because Jesus Christ has been dead and has been buried and has risen victoriously so that now we have newness of life. We have a new heart and now we have the ability to actually do things that are pleasing to God. We can obey these commands by God's grace because of the grace that He has instilled in us in the sanctification process that's taking place. And Paul, throughout this letter, more than any other letter, remember we've been highlighting these, talks about the parousia, the return of Jesus Christ as the motivator to do these things faithfully to God. That is our motivation. So just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we too will be raised with Him in glory. Amen? And that's a motivator for us to live this life here and now and to be faithful with what God has called us to do. Now, the early church in the book of Acts, as it is laid out, is very instructive as to what the, what the church should look like and how it should function. Uh, they endured persecution. They witnessed to the law. They actually removed the wicked man from among them in Acts chapter 5, the example of Ananias and Sapphira. They did not deal with sin in the camp, or they did deal with it. <laughs> they removed it. Um, and Paul knew that even in, amongst the strongest churches, like Thessalonica, that they must be faithful to confront sin in people, to confront sin among the members. And that's really what he's going to talk about here in verses 14 and 15 as we open these up, is our our responsibility to one another. Verses 12 and 13 spoke more of the responsibility of ministers to their people and the people to ministers. This is more um, as, as far as to one another. And this idea of confronting sin, okay, it's a delicate thing. And we're going we're to develop this a little bit, but it's a delicate thing. It's not something that you just pull out the sword and, boy, I'm just going to go get him. That's not how it's to be done. And we're going to look at that in some detail. But just as a side note, this approach to church growth is diametrically opposed, right, to the method of church growth of the 21st century. Um, the 21st century church says that you never confront sin. In fact, you better take that word and throw it out the window. Don't mention hell, sin, um, damnation, any of these types of things. Holiness, they remove those things from the vocabulary. And they substitute in its place entertainment, a seeker-friendly environment, uh, something that's just going to tickle the ears and, and appeal to the senses. And that's how they keep those around. And so... Paul's method here uh, is diametrically opposed to the method <laughs> that are being used today. So tonight, with God's help, we've got just two very simple points. The first in verse 14, the second in verse 15. First, we're going to see our need to be patient with all types of men and how we must do that. And then secondly, 
we're going to see that we must forsake revenge, but actually seek the good of all men. So inside and outside of the church. So the title of the message is Obey Your Christian Duties Towards One Another. And let's read the text, verse 14 and 15. Paul says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So first of all, we must be patient with all types of men. And Paul begins here with, with we urge you, brethren, it's parakaleho, to call alongside. I, I strongly urge you, brethren, and he calls them brethren again, that term of endearment, the idea that the spiritually healthy, who are the, the brethren in the church who have been redeemed and have been sanctified to some measure, those are the ones that should be doing these things. Uh, by inference, the leaders are to have a role in these things, but this or- exhortation is directed to who specifically? It's the congregation. It's to the brethren. It's not to the leaders. And so these three commands are, are focusing on three different types of men. And first of all, Paul tells us to admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. Now, you know that word is nuseo. We, we brought this up last week. Where speaking in, in verse twelve, in verse twelve, where it talks about that they give you instruction. That's actually the same word. So the word occurs just two verses apart, and it has. What's the goal of, of nuthetic counseling? What's the goal of nutheo? It's to literally put in mind that which is right. It, it has the idea of a warning, a, a soft warning, to instruct and admonish. Admonishment is not being judgmental or, or, or critical but rather it has a caring kind of warning against danger. And Paul, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31, we looked at this last week as well, he says, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to what? Admonish you, even with tears. So that's the word, that's the idea. So the question is raised, okay, that's fine, we know what admonishment is, but who are the unruly? Who are the unruly here? Well, um, the word actually has a, 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 the, the idea of being disorganized, disorderly, and it kind of has a military connotation to it. Uh, literally, it means out of ranks, the extra-biblical use of it is. So it might refer to those who avoid their responsibilities, those who neglect ministry, those who who don't show up for work, those who are severely irresponsible, these types of things. And it has this, um, this, this military connotation to it, and we have military people here. And when you're in boot camp, what happens? It's all about teaching you to just march in circles around blacktop. And if you're out of ranks, you're left, you're left, you know, you're out of ranks, it's down, you're doing 50 push-ups. That's the idea. You're out of step. You're not, you're not functioning right smoothly with the body of Christ as you ought to be. And so the call is, is to admonish those. Admonish those who are living in this, this way. Oftentimes these are those who are, can be characterized, and Paul develops this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, but those who, are, who busy themselves with other people's business, those who are nosy, contentious, quarrelsome, gossips, unsubmissive to authority. 
these are the types of, of people that we are to admonish. Admonish these types. MacArthur actually broadens the use of the word and says that it could refer to those who fail to serve in the church to use their gifts or fail to those who do not support the leadership of the local church. Now the opposite of unruly we looked at in detail in chapter 4 and verse 11. Look back there with me. When he gave the exhortation here, verse 11 and 12, and make it your ambition to what? Lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not have any need. That's a picture of what an orderly life would be. A ruled person. And admonishment is healthy for the church. Not just for the sake of admonishment, but for the sake of bringing a restoration, that a warning that is heeded, the admonishment, you've won your brother. Um, Paul develops this in Romans 15. You know this verse. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish, admonish one another. What is the idea of full of goodness there? That somehow the one that's doing the admonishing is better than the other? No, that's, that's not the idea. The idea is that full of goodness that you're mature and you've, you're, 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 you're seasoned and, and, you're, and you, can, you can offer some words and, and that they would be heeded. And we do this in a winsome way. Now, a negative example of someone who failed to admonish could be found in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3. Eli the high priest, remember that? His kids rebelled against God. They, they, um, they did what was de- despising before the Lord. And it says very clearly there, we're not going to turn there, that he failed to admonish his children. And so admonishment is, is, is important. It can't be neglected. So, we've seen that we're to admonish the unruly now, encourage or console the saint-hearted, Paul goes on to say. Now, this word for encourage is not the standard word that you, that you see that, uh, in the Word of God, but it's actually a word that only occurs four times. It has the idea of coming close to someone's side. It's very close to parakolejo. Uh, to speak in a friendly manner. Um, it, it actually has the idea of rousing, someone's, rousing up someone's will about what ought to be done. So I guess it's a, it's a, maybe we could say it's a little softer way of encouragement. And it, the word occurs twice in John 11 in relation to Lazarus and Mary and Martha and, and Jesus there. So the idea here is that, that we need to encourage and come alongside in a friendly manner those who are faint-hearted. And the faint-hearted are literally those who are little-souled. Now again, does that mean they're less than anyone else? No. I think it's like children's progress. Remember the character Little Faith. He had enough faith. He had some faith, but he was little faith. And he wasn't strong in his faith. And so um, that's the idea here, that we come alongside those burdened with trials and reproaches and temptations, and, and yet they have some faith and then we encourage and we console them and we help them. Perhaps it's speaking of those who are fearful of, to venture out and to try anything. Those that are, that are scared to try anything. And this it's, might have very well applied to some of the Thessalonians. The persecution was intense. 
from both the Jews and the Gentiles. There was persecution that this church was enduring. And perhaps some were naturally coiling back and not wanting to participate in any of that. A paraphrase, a, a just paraphrase might be, encourage those who are losing heart. Encourage those who are losing heart. Now, if you've been a believer any amount of time, you've, you've met people like this. You hopefully have ministered to people like this from time to time to come alongside, encourage those who are losing heart. You see, you don't want to admonish them because you'll break them. You'll snuff them out. It's the, you see the difference here? We admonish the unruly, but those who are faint-hearted, those who are, who are weak, we come along and we befriend and we help in that way. I remember about 12 years ago, one of the founding deacons of Grace Bible Church, Ed Dreyer, his wife had been diagnosed with cancer, was inoperable. They were in the early 80s. They were in the hospital. And I think Jen was with me, but I, they popped in unannounced. And um, it was a time, these are people that were mightily used of the Lord, that had a fruitful life. But at this juncture, as she has days, maybe a couple weeks left of her life, she was very despondent. She was doubting her salvation. She was, she was fearful. And God just used this time of ministering to them and encouraging them. And I remember distinctly to this day of reminding her of the grand doctrine of justification by faith alone, that our standing in Christ does not waver no matter how we feel. And by the end, tears are flowing. We're singing hymns. The nurses are looking in what's going on. And it was just a glorious time. And I think that's a vivid example of, of coming alongside and encouraging one that's despondent, one um, that needs to be reminded of glorious truths. And it's a blessing to be used to the Lord um, in this way. There's many other examples that I hope that you could cite in your own life, but all too often we're too busy to take the time to do what it takes to invest in people. Isn't that true? We've got our agendas, we've got this to do, and sometimes we'll pass up opportunities like that. We need to encourage the faint-hearted. It's a command, brethren. It's a command. Don't push that aside. Well, that's not for me. I'm not gushy. I'm not good at that. Uh-uh. It's a command. You must do it. Now, practically, how can you do this? Well, I think God uses these past trials and, and difficulties that each of us have gone through so that we can go and encourage a brother that's going through something similar. The Second Corinthians 1 principle. Um, and so when you hear somebody going through something that you have gone through, you should be the first one in line to go and minister to that person, to offer encouragement, to go out of your way. Every believer, especially those who, have, or who are mature in the faith, who have been walking with the Lord for some time, have a reservoir of Christian experience that they can share. And, and why they don't share it, and why some want to hold that to themselves, and some just turn their backs to, to these, um, is beyond me. But God wants us to encourage and to build one another up and to share our experiences one with another. This is why discipleship is so important, to come alongside someone. If a five-year-old, if there's a rainstorm and the, the streets are flooded and a five-year-old's going down screaming, who would not take his hand and to latch on to him and to pull him to safety? And the same is true as those who are young in the faith, who have just come to faith, 
and they don't know and they're trying to discover things and, and that kind of thing. They need help. They need somebody to mentor them, encourage them, and to come alongside. Discipleship's important. Small groups are important. Accountability is important. Look for those relationships. Well, Paul goes on and he says, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and then he says, help the weak. Help the weak. Now, the weak here is the same word that Peter uses when he speaks of the weaker vessel. You're familiar with that passage in Peter uh, chapter 3. And is the wife, because she's the weaker vessel, is there less dignity there? Absolutely not. It's just that she's fragile. She's, she needs to be dealt with in a fragile way. You should treat your, your uh, wife like fine crystal. <laughs> the King James actually has translates it to cling to, and that's probably a better translation. It actually has the idea of holding on to the weak. It's, it's not just help them up and then turn around and do your thing. It's holding on. Hold on to the weak. Don't let the weak fall. Come alongside. Be next to them. Encourage them. That's the idea here. We've all known those who are prone to doubt and that are fragile, perhaps physically weak, uh, mentally weak, economically needy, all these types of things. And we are to encourage and help the weak, hold on to the weak. Um, Paul said in Acts 20 again, and everything I, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must what? You know it. Help the weak. You must help the weak. And so in a very real way, if you're holding on to a weak person, what does that mean? It means you're going to be bearing some of their difficulties, some of their trials. You're going to be bearing some of that. Romans 15 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So again, how can you do this practically? Become a friend to those who are weak. Befriend them. Spend time with them. Invite them in your home. Grant accountability. Point them to Christ. Pray for them. Demonstrate compassion, just as compassion has been shown to you by God the Father, as your sins have been wiped out. Demonstrate compassion. And the caution is, is that as you bear with them, and as they open up themselves, and they, they become vulnerable, and they're sharing things, that you don't become judgmental. Do you see how that can happen? All of a sudden now you're holding on to them and you're bringing them up, but suddenly now you're learning this stuff and then you become superior and you're, you're judgmental. You have to be careful of that. Paul again addressing that in Romans. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So, we're to hold on, help the weak, and then Paul goes on and says that to be patient with everyone. You must be patient with each group of these people. You must exercise a long suffering and forbearance with all types of people. Ephesians one that pass or Ephesians four rather, that passage on unity, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing forbearance with one another in love. Now, this word, uh, to be patient, it actually has the idea of long wrath. And, the, and, it's, and it has the idea of the ability to, be, to not be inconvenienced or taken advantage of. 
by any person over and over again. That is, that you don't become angry when you are abused and taken advantage of like that. That's the idea there. It reminds me of when Peter comes to Jesus thinking himself to be so righteous. How often must I forgive? Seven times? Pat, pat, pat. <laughs> no, 70 times, 70 times, our Lord says. And the bottom line and the reality, brethren, is that as you're dealing with those who are unruly, those who are faint-hearted, those who are weak, you need patience. Your patience will be tried as you're dealing with these types of people. And so Paul wisely gives the command here to be patient with everyone because you will run into these people and you will need the patience. Um, you will need to exercise patience in those situations. It's easy to become frustrated uh, with these types of people and um, God allows these, these kinds of things and these people in our lives to build our character, to work, help us to work out our own salvation that we might become mature. Now, sometimes people leave the church to escape troublesome people. Well, that church has so many needy people, I'm just going to find a church that doesn't have any of these types of people. You're not going to find it until glory. You're not going to find the perfect church. Figure out how you can be useful in the, the church where you're at. And patience, as you know, this is a very important virtue in the Christian life. According to Paul, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a manifestation of love. Love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13.4. One of the greatest motives to patience is to consider how God has dealt with you and your own sin. Psalm 103 again. Just consider that. Read that psalm later. He has not treated you as as your sins deserved. Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, and all too often we we feel like our justice is, uh, you know, that we have the exact justice. The idea of a husband and a wife, that they focused on every single tiny little infraction, can you imagine the hostility that that would be to live together? It wouldn't be very peaceful. We need to live a life of peace and to learn to bear and forbear with one another and to be patient with one another. Well, Paul uh, gives, hits us with that machine gun with four imperatives there after the we urge you and then these four imperatives. And now, moving on to the next verse, we've seen these commands that were to admonish, encourage, and to help concerning these three types of people, but now we must be patient with each of these. Verse 15 again says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So we must forsake revenge and seek the good of all men. Paul adds two examples here. He gives two examples, one negative and then one positive. And we're going to look at these in turn. First of all, he says, Never repay evil for evil. Well, the idea to repay, as you know, is the idea to render unto someone, to requite, to recompense uh, to another man. Um, many claim that the Old Testament taught revenge, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye, and, and, and that therefore revenge is okay. But it actually that was used to exact justice, to prevent personal revenge. That's why that was in place. We need to keep in mind that the Thessalonians faced this persecution from both the Jews and the Gentiles and perhaps retaliation and to, 
to exact revenge or, or to repay would have been a temptation for those, just as it would be for us if bombs started coming through that window or rocks started coming through from that group over there. It would be a temptation, would it not, to retaliate in some way. And isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that some of the most painful circumstances that we've ever had to deal with, sadly, has happened in the context of the local church. And we need to be very careful of that. Um, they, they, you know, some of the worst insults come from within the church than out in the world. And, and as there's splits and divisions and these types of things, we must guard against that because anger will lead to gossip and gossip leads to slander and slander leads to, to you know, it just keeps going on and on. So we need to guard against that. Of Romans 12, the Apostle says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And, but the bottom line is, we think we're up here like this and that if my rights have been violated, I have to retaliate. Isn't that how you rationalize in your mind sometimes? Well, it's not a full revenge, but I must do something here to implement some type of justice on this person that has offended me. No. Paul says no. Never pay back evil for evil. See that no one repays another evil for evil. And isn't it true that getting back to the the patient man and and the end of verse 14 here, isn't it true that it's an impatient man that wants to be quick to retaliate and to exact revenge? So that fruit is very important to cultivate. The proverb says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and He will save you. And who is our supreme example on this? Of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, I'll just read it uh, for you. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth, and while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Brethren, be like Christ. Be like Him when it comes to these things. Paul does not merely forbid revenge, but he goes on by way of contrast, and now positively, he says, pursue, or uh, always seek after that which is good for one another, for one another here, and then and for all people. Now this is another imperative here. And he's speaking of those in the local church and for all people. I think it goes outside the church. But I want you to notice with me this word to seek after. Um, it doesn't come across real clear in, in the NAS here, but it's actually the word to pursue vigorously. When is the last time you pursued vigorously the good of others and the good of others who you don't even know in some cases? It's the same word that occurs in Timothy 6 when he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, and faith. In Hebrews 12.14, talking about holiness and peace, pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Pursue, seek after, vigorously. That's the idea here. And again, this is not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a command for you, 
brother and sister in Christ. Always seek the good of all men. Galatians 6.10 So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially those of the household of faith. Especially is a very important word. Notice that the text in Galatians here does not say, do good to the saints and exclude other men. Does it say that? No. No. Especially to the household of faith, but you do good to all men. And we're to pursue that vigorously. And as you learn to obey Christ and to love Him and to be like Him and to love your enemies, you will be able to fulfill this command. And it really is a fulfillment of the law, according to Romans 13. Paul says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Loving enemies and loving those whom we don't know is a difficult thing. We've talked about loving one another, loving the brethren several times through the series. I'm not going to harp on that, but I am going to talk about loving our enemies and uh, for just a moment here. <clears throat> and I'm going to do that by way of giving you two illustrations. And the first has to do with this. During the American Revolutionary War, there was a Baptist pastor by the name of Peter Miller. He lived in a small town in Pennsylvania. And... He was a friend of George Washington. It was around the time of George Washington. And in this small town, there was a guy by the name of Mike Whitman, notorious criminal, evil man. He'd humiliate the pastor and make fun of him all the time. Well, this man was arrested for treason, and so Peter Miller walked 70 miles to Philadelphia to plead for the life of this man. <coughs> Mr. Washington said, No, Peter. I can't grant you the life of your friend. The old preacher cried, My friend? He's the bitterest enemy I have. Washington said, What? You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant the pardon. And he did. Peter took back Whitman to that small town, no longer an enemy, but a friend. That's just one demonstration there of... And and really, there's one of two things that are going to happen when you demonstrate love to enemies or to those who you don't know, and you make yourself vulnerable. One of two things are going to happen. You're going to win your brother. It's just happened here. Win the person. I don't know if he came to faith. Or it'll go completely unnoticed, as in this story. I'm going back further in time, in the 1500s here. Um, There was a man by the name of Dirk Williams. He was an Anabaptist, and he was convicted... Uh, by the Spanish Catholics uh, for his uh, baptistic beliefs and in the Netherlands. Well, he escaped prison by tying bed sheets together and letting himself down the side of the building, but there was a pond there, and it was winter time, and there was some thin ice in the pond, and since he was so poorly fed, he was able to flee away from the prison very easily. However, when the guard came after him, being well fed and uh, taken well care of there, he was much, much heavier And as he was pursuing after Dirk Williams, he fell into the ice. And Dirk heard him yelling for help. And he heard the guard yelling and yelling. And can you imagine what went through that that man? And he knew, he said, I went back, I'm going to be burned at the stake. But he went back and he saved that guard's life. And that guard, these are true stories, the guard took him back, put him in jail, and after all that, he was burned at the stake for his baptistic beliefs. 
So nobody recognized. The guard didn't recognize. Not one word, you know. But God saw. And God was honored. Burned at the stake for his Baptist beliefs. Brethren, such extreme love should be characterized of those of us who have been born again. Those of us who who relish in the benefits of Psalm 103, having our sins completely forgiven, a Father who is compassionate beyond all else, and is so long-suffering towards us, us, this is the type of love we should be quick to show. No one recognized that man's feet uh, but God. When was the last time you demonstrated an unselfish love like that towards somebody? Consider these things. Well, in conclusion, in application, we saw two very simple points, to be patient with all types of men and then to never exact revenge and rather to seek good for others. So, first of all, if you are here tonight and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only thing you are prone to as an unbeliever is you're prone to being selfish, to looking out for self. But in fact, the unbeliever only does good to those whom, whom he's close to. He can care less about anyone else. Looks out for number one. There is no way you can truly be patient with men if you are not redeemed, if you have not received that new heart, that new disposition that comes to those of us who are saved by Christ. You must see yourself as one who is utterly opposed to God because you live for yourself and you think somehow your life, your character is good enough to be acceptable to God. But you ignore the fact that God demands a perfect holiness and you fall so far short that you refuse to admit that. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord You will be utterly awakened to the reality of the holiness of God and His justice as you would pay for your sins and an eternity in hell. But the good news of the Gospel is is that if you will look to Christ and believe and to see Him, to see the, the, the Savior through the eyes of faith, you can't see Him now, don't look at any cross or image here, but to see Him through the eyes of faith as a Savior who has come to offer salvation but you must repent. You must come to Him in faith. You must cry that there's nothing in my hand I bring. There's nothing good in me. I trust in You alone for salvation. You see, He kept God's law perfectly. Uh, he paid for all the sins that, that, that we deserved. You must be born again. He was buried. He was He rose from the dead victoriously 2,000 years ago. And so now He has conquered death for all who will trust in Him. And then we have that hope, not only of of this life only, but we have that hope of being raised and being glorified and to be with Him forever. What a glorious Savior, a Savior to be worshipped, a Savior to be known, to be trusted in. One that we will see one day face to face. How could you turn your head from such a free offer of the Gospel Come to Christ. If the Lord's dealing with your heart, talk to any of us afterwards. We would love to talk to you. But for us, believers here, we have much that we can apply. There's been application throughout. We've been reminded about how we have a role in challenging and encouraging one another to provoking one another unto love and good deeds, as it says in Hebrews chapter 3. 
beware of being a part of cliques. You know what cliques are? These little groups of people that, well, they do this kind of stuff and they do those kinds of things. And I, I'm thankful to say I don't see that here. Um, I do see it in bigger churches, and it's actually a very common problem. We need to try to avoid that. Beware of cliques. Reach out to those who are weak, those who are faint-hearted. You see, you can't obey these imperatives here, brethren, if you don't know the brethren. And that's why it's so important to be a part of the public worship of God, to be a part of midweek groups and prayer meetings and these types of things, because you can't obey these fully if you don't know the body of Christ, right? That's why we need to know one another, that we might do these things. Think of Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve others. That should be our mindset. And remember the Matthew 7 principle, that you must take the speck out of your own eye first before you go and to confront a brother. You must examine yourself first. Your motives must be pure when considering these things and how you could be useful in Christ's church and to obey these imperatives here. And you, Christian, you must remain humble in these things. Again, as you come alongside the faint-hearted, as you come alongside the weak, you know, the temptation is to think yourself so much better, you better humble yourself. Because the situation can be turned so quickly. And I've seen this happen. I've seen men that were strong and walking strong with the Lord that are suffering severely from depression and these types of things. Things can change. Do not think yourself above um, others in this regard. Remain humble. Come with pure motive to see that they would be encouraged and built up in these types of things. Consider how you can do good even inside uh, this local church. Some of you have been burned in the past by Christians or by previous church experiences. And that's a grievous thing. That's a hard thing. And we must remember that of all the things, that, that, that those things will be made clear in the judgment day. But brethren, today, you have a present responsibility to obey these things. And, um, you know, but again, I've known people that because they've been burned, they refuse to join a church ever again. That ought not be. <laughs> it just ought not be. Uh, I, I'm sympathetic to, to situations and these types of things, but we must be willing to obey the present imperatives for us. And Christ ultimately will come uh, to judge those who do not obey the gospel, as we'll look at in Second Thessalonians 1. So may God help us, brethren, to be faithful in these things, to be diligent, to be found in them, and to be diligent to, to pursue after the good of all men, to have pure motives in these things. May God use this to the end that the New Testament church and this local expression might be built up, that it might be edified, that it might be a bride that is being prepared to see the bridegroom someday, that we would grow in holiness. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you so much for this time that we could be in your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you, Lord, for the clear um, instructions and even commands for us, Lord. I pray that you would enable us to be faithful in obeying these things not so that we can pat ourselves on, our, on the back, Lord, but so that we might see your church um, built up and prepared to see you and ultimately glorified. Oh, Lord, we long to see our churches full. We pray, oh God, that you would help us to demonstrate this type of love to a lost and dying world. To the end, oh God, that you'd be pleased to 
to save souls and to bring them with us. We thank you again for this time and your holy word. Be pleased, we pray, with the rest of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.